If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And as you turn there, just the other day, my wife was talking to me. She stopped and she looked at me and she said, you haven't even heard a word I've said, have you? I thought to myself, well, that's an odd place to start a conversation. And you might look at Philippians 1 and think, well, that's an odd place to start on Resurrection Sunday. Many times when we gather together to celebrate Easter and to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ongoing impact in our lives, many times we'll begin with a specific detail from the Gospels, a specific detail from the resurrection account of Christ from the dead. And really, that isn't a very appropriate place to start. But many times what we'll do is we'll make the mistake of making mostly Easter Sunday the day that we focus on the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the impact of that ongoing, his resurrection in our lives, the ongoing relationship with Christ, and we'll make it kind of the focus on, on Easter Sunday, and then we'll move on to other things. And really, when it comes to the Christian life, the Christian life is meant to be lived every single day, thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and that ongoing impact in our lives. That there's not a day in the life of a Christian, there's not a day that we should live in life thinking about life other than realizing that everything we do and everything we are has been changed because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done for us. When you look in the New Testament and you look through what's written in the Bible, when we begin to look through it and read it, it's not merely just a list of things to do, a list of do's and don'ts, a list of a lifestyle that we're supposed to strive to live Rather, really, when we look in the New Testament specifically, in many of the letters and the, thing, the books that are written there, the New Testament is giving us explanation of what the resurrected life looks like, what our lives look like after we've encountered the resurrected Christ and how he changes our lives. And so this morning, rather than focusing in on one specific detail from the resurrection account of Christ in the Gospels, I'd love to begin spending some time launching a new series called Joy Story, looking at the book of Philippians, and it begins to talk about how the ongoing impact of the resurrection of Christ changes us on a daily basis and changes us in our living. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, or if you're not familiar with it, rather, that it's a book that was written to a group of, group of people, much like you and me today, just living very busy lives, lives with challenges, lives with difficulties, lives in a culture not much different than our own, and was written from a place of great pain, a place of great difficulty from the author, the Apostle Paul, who was written while he was in prison, but yet he didn't let his circumstances change his outlook. He didn't let the circumstances that he found himself in change the impact and the ongoing impact of the resurrection of Christ in his life. So what I'd like to do is have you turn with me into Philippians chapter 1. I want to share with you just out of the first two verses, I want to show you four things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that impacts our lives. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just several things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how it impacts us today, the ongoing impact of the resurrection of Christ today. The first thing I'd love for you to see is that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection of Christ impacts how God sees our lives. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts how God views your life. It impacts how he sees you. Look in verse number one. Again, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Do you see that word holy? He says all of God's 
holy people. He calls them holy. Now, when we think about he's writing this letter to these people living several thousand years before us in a different place, a different land, a different city, sometimes when we read this and if we're really just not connected to or we're out of touch of who the, the, the books in the New Testament were written to, who was receiving those, sometimes we can, in our minds, we can over-Christianize the recipients. We can over-Christianize the person receiving this. And so before you do that this morning, thinking about, well, he's writing to Christians who were these just extreme faith Christians, these people who were living for Christ the extreme, before you think that or before you do that this morning, just to help you understand a little bit of who Paul is writing to, it's a group of people that he's most likely only met once. And he's only spent a few days with them before having to leave their area. And the whole story is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. But to give you a Cliff Notes version of what takes place, the Apostle Paul is there. He's ministering, and God uses him to to powerfully change several lives. And among the lives that are changed, there's three or four that stand out specifically, and they become a part of this church that's, that's established who this is being written to. One of them is a slave girl who was demon possessed and could tell the future. The second person was a person who oversaw the local jail and oversaw the, the, uh, the torturing and the beating of the Apostle Paul and an associate when they were there. And then the third person is a single woman, probably a widow, a business owner, who uh, has just a wealthy business. So you have three people from totally different backgrounds, totally different walks of life. Up until this encounter they'd had with the Apostle Paul, they did not know of Jesus and did not live for Jesus. But Jesus so radically changes their lives through Paul that they begin to meet together and begin to have this house church. And so Paul has met them once. He knows their background. He knows where they're from. He knows probably from just the short window with them, he knows a few of their faults and their failures and their struggles and their past. But yet in this, he writes, he says, to God's holy people. He calls them holy. And I want you to see this. He says in verse 1 again, it says, to all God's holy people. He says to all of God's holy people, meaning every single person who reads this is being called holy. That means as you read this this morning, if you, as you read it as it was on the screen or you read it in your Bible, it says to all of God's holy people. That means that God is calling you holy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts how God sees your life. It changes how he views you. When we hear the word holy, we see it in scripture, we read the word holy, sometimes it's one of those small word but big church implications, big Christian implications in life, and we can sometimes disconnect it from what it means in life today. So when we read the word holy in the Bible, it references a couple of things. Number one, when we read about it talking about who God is, we read about God being a holy God. When the Bible talks about God being a holy God, it's talking about who he is, the purity of who he is, set apart from this world, set apart from the ways of this world, and a number of things that go with that. But it's really kind of the sum and the fullness of who he is. But the Bible doesn't use the word holy just to talk about who God is. The Bible also uses the word holy to talk about who those who place their faith in Christ, who we are in him. We're called to be holy, holy people. And to describe someone as being holy, it means, as the Bible talks about it, is they're set apart from the world, they're set apart from the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the lifestyle of the world, not living life off in seclusion and disconnected from the world and the culture, but rather living life in a way that their lives are not influenced or shaped by the culture, but rather their lives are shaping and influencing those around them. 
And so when we see this where it says that he calls them, he says, to all of God's holy people, it reminds us that God, through Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God looks at your life this morning and he sees you as being holy. Many times we look at the Christian life and we look at the life we're living. We can read in the New Testament. We can read in Scripture and we can see all that we're supposed to be, all that we're supposed to do, all that we're supposed to become in Christ. And we have this list of, oh, I'm missing it here. I'm failing there. I'm not getting this. I'm not getting that. I'm not doing this. I need to do this better. And we can think about it as almost a list of do's and don'ts and things we have to do. But when it comes to the Christian life, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning... What that tells us, what the Bible says is when God calls you holy, he's not calling you holy or calling you perfect or calling you right because of anything that you can bring to him. He's not calling you holy because of anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead, that God looks at your life and he sees you as holy. I think two things to think about, two words that help summarize understanding how God views your life this morning because of the resurrection of Christ and what Christ has done for you is two words. One is position and one is process. One is because of what Christ has done in our lives, thinking about the holiness of God and how holy he is, there's the position because of what Jesus has done, I am holy in him. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, that's you. That you're part of all of God's holy people. Some, some translations, instead of using the word holy, will use the word saints. Because of what Jesus has done, you are a saint. You are a saint before God when he looks at you. But there's that position that's been given. But then secondly, there's the ongoing process. Because of what Jesus has done, I'm continually learning to live more in line with who God calls me to be. See, the Christian life is never about learning to become what you, not, what you currently are not. If the Christian life is all about learning to become what we currently are not, then, then we'll never get there. The Christian life is learning to become what God already sees us, who he already sees us to be. How he looks at your life and how he already sees you to be. I was this morning on the way to, to church, my wife had put on a worship song and as she was playing the worship song, there was a, a, a phrase in that song, and it said, I am who he says I am. It says, I am who he says I am. And this morning, God does not look at your life if you're here and you have made that decision to give your, place your faith in Jesus Christ. God does not look at your life and say, there's the failure. He doesn't look at your life and say, there's the addict. He doesn't look at your life and say, there's the adulterer. There's the gossip. There's the one who, who can't control their anger. There's the person who's consumed with this. He doesn't look at your life and see the struggle that you may have been in or the struggle you may have come from. He looks at your life and he says, because of what Jesus has done, I see them as holy. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. It impacts how God sees our lives, that we are who he says we are. The second thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning and how that impacts our lives is not only does it impact how God sees our lives, the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts how God works in our life. Look in verse number two. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. How God works in our lives, he works from a position and a place of grace. 
That opening phrase from grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a favorite opening phrase the Apostle Paul uses. He opens so many of his letters, at least six different times he opens and he's writing letters to different believers, to different holy people all around the, the Roman world at that time. And he continually says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that he views them and recognizes of the grace that God is working in their lives. Now, there's another translation. It's called the Passion Translation. I want you to listen to this. I want you to read how, how this says. If you could put that on the screen. It says, We decree over your lives the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful Father, and our anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But he says, We decree over your lives the blessings of divine grace. That there's this decree, there's this releasing of divine grace over our lives. The, the word grace can be translated into the word favor, understanding God's favor or his grace upon our lives. And when I read that translation that was just on the screen that says that it's decreed and released over your lives, there's a picture that comes to mind, and for me, it's being in the middle of, of a very hot summer day, perhaps it's late August, and it's, we've not had any days of rain, and the, the grass gets to the point where it's just scorched, and it's, it's burnt, it's dying, and it's just, it's just hot out. There's really no relief from the heat, and if you've been out in the heat for a while, you know you're thirsty, you're worn, you're tired, you're sweaty, you're just, you're worn out. And in the midst of, of, just really out of nowhere, in the midst of that heat, in the midst of that dryness, in the midst of, of that uh, thirst, just out of nowhere, there's this a storm that comes and just settles over and begins to release a downpour of rain that with it just in moments, everything is drenched, everything is soaked, that there's not a place or a thing that's outside that's not been touched or, or impacted by that rain, that torrential downpour that's been released. That's really the picture that God is trying to, to describe of the grace that he releases over your life because of what Jesus has done. He just releases grace upon grace upon grace over your life. That there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to, to produce it. But it's all because of what Jesus has done. And the resurrection of Christ and that ongoing impact in your life is that it's the releasing and the working of God's grace in your life again and again. Now, as I've mentioned in, in Philippians, it's written by an individual by the name of the Apostle Paul. And if you're familiar with Paul, you'll know that he's one of the, the key church leaders at this time. Someone's using, God's using in a significant way. But what you may not know about the Apostle Paul was that he had a pretty rough start at the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, you can look back into the book of Acts once again, and you'll find that the Apostle Paul started as an individual who absolutely hated Christianity. Not only did he hate Christianity, he hated Christ, and he hated any Christian or anyone who tried to represent Christ. So much so that he would travel from town to town and place to place trying to stop and stomp out believers and, their, and how they were giving witness to Christ. The Bible gives testimony of one specific time, true story of when he came into an area and he found a specific leader who was a significant leader in the early church, and Paul was able to get it so that individual was executed. Now, Paul absolutely hated Christianity, but on one of, his, one of his trips, one of his times traveling to another town, another city, to look for and persecute Christians and to stomp out the, what is called the way, or stomp out the, the message of Christ, that he has this encounter with Jesus that just, just shocks him, just changes him, radically changes who he is. 
He has this encounter with the resurrected Christ, and years later, towards the end of his ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he gives an account of that encounter with Jesus, not so much describing the encounter, but explaining why Jesus worked in his life. Look at this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, here is a trustworthy saying that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He says, Christ came for the worst. And he came for the worst so that he could demonstrate the working and the outpouring of his grace. See, grace speaks of being acceptable. It speaks of being received. And what Paul describes having take pla taken place in his life is called grace. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of what you can bring, but because of what Jesus has done for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes and transforms how God continually works in your life. And that is called grace. And his grace is released towards you, his grace is released over you, and his grace is continually extended towards you. I want to show you one other verse that just helps understand this idea of God's grace and how his grace is working and at work in our lives and how he continues to just release and change our lives. John chapter 1 verse 16, talking about Jesus and who he is. John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. It says, Through Jesus you receive grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. And the, the word that's used there to describe that grace upon grace is really very similar to the words that would be used to talk about a wave that hits the beach on the ocean, that a wave comes and then another wave comes. And then another wave comes, and then another wave comes, and then another wave comes. That there's never a point that you're there at the beach, standing at the beach, and a wave comes, and then all of a sudden you're shocked because where did the waves go? That the waves are always coming, and there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And that's a reminder for you and me this morning that because of Jesus Christ, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, and because of how, what he has done for us and how God now sees us because of what Christ has done, that God releases grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in your life. That he releases his favor, he releases the acceptance, being acceptable before God, understanding who he is, his continually working in you. It's grace. It's the grace of God that is working and changing my life and working and changing in your life. And the truth is, when it comes to God's grace, that not only is it inexhaustible, but there's never a place or a point in life that you reach that you no longer need it. So you may be here this morning, and you're a longtime member, longtime part of the church family, State College Assembly, and, or perhaps you're visiting, but you've served Christ for many years. There is never a day in your life that you reach a place where you no longer need his grace. And you may be here this morning as a friend who came and just to make a family member happy just because it's Easter and you figured, you know, I've been telling them I've been going with them, I've been telling them I'll go, say, hey, Easter Sunday is a great time to go. You're in just as much need of grace as any, each one of us here this morning. There's never a place or a moment or a space or a part of your life where you're not in need of the grace that God extends. 
That it's his grace upon grace that he pours out to you and shows you and reveals to you again and again. And the third thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can take and we can understand and see by way of its impact on our lives is not only does it impact how God sees our lives, not only does the resurrection of Jesus Christ impact how God works in our lives, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts how God is active in our circumstances. It changes how God works in your circumstances. How he works in your life, works in your heart, works in your mind, works in your surroundings. Look again in verse number two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. That God actively works peace into your circumstances. Many times we will define peace as being the absence of conflict. We'll define peace as being the absence of tension, the absence of an issue, the absence of a difference. But that's not how the Bible describes peace at all. In fact, I think that's where we most often miss the peace that God desires for us to have is because we look for peace being something that's externally happening around us and that when this issue around us stops, then I'll have peace. How many of you have ever said once the kids are all in the house or things get quiet in the office, you're finding like some peace and quiet? But at peace, the, real, the peace that Jesus brings us, the peace that God extends to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his work in our lives, the peace that God extends to us is far more than just a changing in our circumstances. That's why there's a radical difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, See, a peacekeeper is someone who you'll have two individuals who may be at odds with each other and they're, they're standing and they're about to just go at it. A peacekeeper will stand in the middle and say, hey guys, and you'll just hold them at a distance. They'll keep the peace. But a peacemaker doesn't just keep the peace, doesn't just sustain both sides with where they're at. A peacemaker doesn't just keep the sides apart but finds a way to bring the sides together. And that's the work that Jesus does. He releases peace into our lives. And that's a peace that only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only does he release peace into our lives, he releases peace into our circumstances, peace into your home, peace into your marriage, peace into your relationships. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew language has a word that's used for peace, and that word is shalom. The word shalom, when it, it's translated in the English Bible, it's translated, they find it over 200 times that it's translated into our Bibles. Over 200 different times, the word shalom is used and translated into our Bibles, and that's the Hebrew word for peace. When it comes to the NIV, which is the translation I use this morning and many probably use here, those 200 different words of the word shalom, when they're translated, the, the English language has to use over 70 different words in different places and different things to try to fully get our mind around the impact of the peace that God brings and restores in our lives. So over 70 different words have to be used to describe the type of peace that God releases in our lives through Jesus Christ. Different words like talking about harmony, talks about peace, talks about restoration, talks about hope, talks about joy, all of these different things, all describing the peace, shalom, 
that God desires and extends to us through Jesus Christ. And I look at that and I think that the word shalom is translated over 200 times in the English language and then there's 70 different words that have to be used to then get our minds to fully understand the type of peace that God is extending to us. If it's 70 different ways that it's being described, then perhaps that's just a picture of just how much the peace of God is meant to permeate so many different parts of our lives. That there's all sorts of different ways that his peace can be applied and and impacting and changing our lives, but it all begins with a relationship with him. See, many times we look at peace and we look at the peace that God desires for us to have and the peace that he extends to us, and we we look at it and we we, uh, really look at how how do I change this circumstance, how do I change that, but what we can't forget is that the book of Philippians, where we started this morning, and everything in the New Testament is really explaining the, the relationship that's been changed because of what Jesus has done, the peace that God extends to us because of what Jesus has done, how he's at work in our lives because of what Jesus has done. And when you look at the book of Philippians, the book that we're beginning our study in today and we will go for the next several weeks, when you look at Philippians, what we can't forget is that the Apostle Paul, while he's writing this and he's talking about the peace and the joy that God has created in his life and that he's extending towards others, what we can't forget is where he's writing it from. The Apostle Paul is not writing it from some cozy little office or some cozy little cottage saying, hey, God's got peace for you and he's got these, this tranquil, peace, peaceful place that he's, he's writing this from. The Apostle Paul is writing this from a prison cell. He's writing this from a Roman dungeon. Many times in Roman dungeons, the, the, the prisoners were not taken care of except for friends who might bring them something. And so he's writing from a place really of being abandoned. And yet in the midst of this, this, these circumstances he finds himself in, circumstances that many of us would probably look at and say, well, man, I, I feel so, so, I have a lack of peace. How do I get out of this place? How does this circumstance change? How do I, how does this, how do I get out of this thing? And yet the Apostle Paul is there writing and he's talking about peace. And he's talking about joy. Shows us that the peace that God extends to us, the joy that he wants for you to have, is not dependent on what's happening around you. It's dependent on the one who's living in you. See, Paul was at peace not because of what bound him, but because of who held him. When you look in in Philippians chapter 1, he says, Paul and, and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, He says, servants of Christ Jesus, some translations or maybe slightly better translations would say bond servants or bound servants or bound slaves. He's identifying the chains that hold him, but he's not identifying chains that hold him in the prison cell. He's talking about his life being committed completely and fully over to Christ. And he says, because my life belongs to Jesus, because I've got the resurrected Savior living inside of me, there is no prison cell small enough or tight enough that can contain the peace and the joy that he gives me. And so for you this morning, I would just ask you when it comes to the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ upon your life, upon your home, upon your family, upon your marriage, upon your workplace, a good measure, a good, a good test to put to yourself this morning and to put to your life this morning when it comes to the peace and the joy that we often choose to settle for Really kind of one of those checks to see, have, have I settled for the type of peace that Jesus can bring? Is look at your life and say, how easily is my peace disrupted? Or how easily is my joy disrupted? Does it take a longer than normal red light on the way home today 
Does it take a fussing child who won't be quiet? Does it take an annoying coworker in the next office? Not, not implying that to any of my guys. Just <laughs> clarify. <laughs> but what does it take to disrupt your, your joy and your peace? For the Apostle Paul, a prison cell couldn't do it. What is it for you? It's a good reminder of the work and the peace that God desires to bring into our lives and into our circumstances. And then the last thing I'd like to show you really is more of a question. We talk about the being holy before God. We talk about the peace that he brings. We talk about the grace that he extends us. And the question I would just leave you with this morning is how does this all come about? The peace, being holy or being right before God, and the grace that he extends us. How, do we, how does that come about? Look in verse two again. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it comes from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That it comes through him. We live in a very pluralistic culture, very pluralistic society that loves to believe that all ways ultimately get to heaven, always end up in the final destination. As long as you love others, try to be a good person, you get there. But the Apostle Paul tells us in verse two, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you want it, here's how you get it. That if we want the, the grace and the peace and the right relationship with God that the Bible describes, then we have to trust the Bible's way to get it. I was having a conversation just a few weeks ago in a workplace, just a business uh, around us here, just a transaction for the church, and as I was there, the, the salesman, we were waiting for something just to be handled, so we were sitting here, and we were waiting, and as we're sitting and we're waiting, the individual, knowing I was from the church, knowing I was the pastor here, he just began to strike up a conversation with me. We were just talking, and, and, uh, and I really just looking for an opportunity that God could use me in some way just to share Jesus, to share the gospel with him. And as we're talking, and as I'm interacting with him, and I, I told him, I told, said to the young man, I said his name, and I said, hey, listen, the most important thing, I said, I'm not certainly not trying to recruit you to our church. If you want to come to our church, we'd love to have you. But I'm not trying to recruit you to our church. The most important thing is that you, you find a Bible-believing church that preaches and focuses upon the change that Jesus brings, the importance of Jesus being the only way to relationship with God. I said, those are two things you've really got to find in a church. There's a lot of different styles out there. I know the other pastors in town, I can help you connect, but you need to find somewhere that focuses upon the importance in Jesus Christ being our way to, to God and the importance of God's word. And he says, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Then in the very next breath, he tells me, he says, I was recently at a church with a friend or with so-and-so, and he said, I just, I can't ever go back. I said, well, why can't you go back? And he said, well, I went there, and this pastor is up there, and he's preaching, and he's preaching from the Bible, and he's preaching about Jesus, but then he said, he said that he was talking about a specific major world religion, and he said, anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus and is a part of that world religion won't go to heaven, he'll go to hell. And he said, so I can't go back to that church because I really believe that all religions get, us, get to the same place in the end. And so I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, Did, didn't we just have a conversation a second ago and we agreed on this? And so I felt like we were like, we just had two, he just stated two contradictory statements out of his mouth within just about 30 seconds of each other. And I tried to help him see that you can't reconcile the two statements that you just said, but it's that idea of, I want my faith the way I want it, but I want the, the relationship with God that the Bible describes. And so I began to take time to talk with this young man, and I, I understood, and you see, his heart was sincere, but it was just 
just uh, his mind was confused from just the way the world has been teaching and just the pluralism and the all roads get to heaven and the universalist approach. And so I just began to talk to him and I said, well, you remember this statement you said earlier that you agreed with me about the importance of relationship with Jesus Christ and the importance of what the Bible teaches. And he said, yeah, I remember that. And I said, but then now you're saying really that all religions get to the same place. He says, yeah, I agree. And I said, well, there's a contradiction here. And I said, the contradiction is, and I took some time with him as we were waiting for this, this transaction to finish, and I just talked with him, and I said, when you take all of these major world religions, and I walked him through just four major world religions, I said, when you look at all four of these major world religions just on who they say Jesus is, you immediately wind up with a contradiction, because each one believes something different about who Jesus is. I said, so they can't all be the same. It has to be one or the other, but they can't, it can't be both. And as I mentioned earlier, that if we want the relationship with God, we want, the, we want the grace that he extends us, we want the peace that he extends us, that if we want that in our lives as described in the Bible, then we have to accept the biblical way of receiving it. And the biblical way of receiving it, as described right here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, it says it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some who would tell me, well, Christianity is too exclusive, that it has to be only through Jesus. And Jesus did say in John 8, he said, he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the way. That you can't have what God offers you except through me. And there's some who would look at that and say, well, Christianity is so exclusive. It keeps so many people out. And to that, I would tell them, well, Christianity is, is incredibly inclusive, it includes as many want to come. The Bible even says, whosoever will may come. That it's inclusive to every single person who wants to come to the cross. But then Christianity is as inclusive as it is that it's open to anyone and everyone who wants to come. Christianity is exclusive. And it's exclusive in this way because in, in Acts 4.12, speaking of Jesus, it says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you want to be right with God? Do you want the peace that he extends? Do you want the grace and the favor of his to rest upon your life? Then it begins to recognizing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and placing our faith and our trust in him and letting him live through us from this point forward. Won't you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me, and I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and thank you, God, this morning for your presence. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, this morning, we stand before you here, and we realize before you in this moment, we realize that this moment is not about what we can do. It's not about our being nice enough or clean enough or right enough and being in church enough that makes us right before you. But we recognize that it comes through what Jesus has done for us. And so, Lord, this morning we come before you and we just say thank you. Thank you for the life that we have because of Jesus. Thank you for the life that we have through Jesus.